With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Here's a radio message. We were talking about Bradley. Please, will you just listen for a change? Come on, let's hear it! I just want to hear Bradley tonight. Bradley J. J. Talking. WBZ News Radio 1030. WBZ, Boston's News Radio. You're Jay talking. We're live midnight to 5. MLK Day, Martin Luther King Day is Monday the 21st. And what better day to talk about the MLK archive over at BU and what better guy to do it than Ryan Hendrickson, Assistant Director for Manuscripts at the Howard Gottlieb Archival Research Center over there at BU. For those of you out of town, BU is Boston University. And you're an MLK expert and... Seems a good guy as well. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thanks, Thanks for, for coming me. in. So what can you tell us in general? Give us an overview of the archive. So the archive is a, a really varied um, in, institution. It's got uh, a lot of his papers from when he was a student at Boston University, which is something that most people don't know much about uh, because it's not a big part of what he talked about later in his career. Uh, it's also got some material from the Montgomery bus boycott, which is really unique and interesting. Uh, because when the time we got the archive in uh, about 1964, it was one of the first collections that we received uh, at all. So uh, at that time, you know, he had a lot of material from before he gave the uh, speech from the March on Washington. So he still had a lot of material from uh, the bus boycott, which was at that time was really the the biggest civil rights action that had that had taken place up to that point. Um, so it's some really unique material uh, in many ways. Yeah. And who uses the archive? Well, we get a real range. We get uh, anyone from uh, high school students and college students who are looking for material to write a paper. Uh, we get documentarians. Uh, we get historians, uh, people in academia. Uh, and sometimes we get a lot of people actually who wrote to Dr. King or who, whose parents or grandparents wrote to him. And uh, and they we get letters all the time and emails from say, uh, do you have a copy of that letter? Because uh, I have a copy of King's letter to him, but I don't have a copy of their letter to King. So we, we go through and we find those family letters and we'll send them out copies. And they, people absolutely love that. So how do you have those filed? How do you, how would, there's so many. How would you find it? Well, we have it organized in different sections. Um, so some of the material we have organized by the organization he was part of or he was affiliated with because there's a lot of those. Uh, and we also have just alphabetically. So if it's a notable person uh, that wrote to him, we would have it filed by their name. Sometimes it's filed by... Uh, it's like uh, colleges or institutions. Do you have them cross-referenced, like, like some by name, some by institution? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah, there's all different ways to find them. And the whole, the whole, what we call the finding aid, which is the whole list, that's all online, so you can search there as well to make it a little easier. The finding aid. Yeah, that's is that a, a public thing. The finding aid. That's yeah. That's sort anything of anything can anyone can find out what's in there. That's the idea. Yeah, it's like a, a big index basically to the entire uh, collection. And what do people tend to use this information for? Well, for the most part, what they're looking for is um, information that you, you wouldn't find in a textbook or you wouldn't necessarily find on a website, something that digs a little deeper uh, into the history of the movement or uh, an aspect of something like that. So a lot of times people are interested to see if King visited a particular place, they gave a speech there, what was the speech that he gave, uh, are they trying to, to, to retrace his steps or 
find out what he thought about a particular issue, maybe that that isn't as well known, or or they're trying to track down a letter that somebody wrote to him at some particular time. They very tend to be very specific questions, uh, not so much the real the more general stuff that you could find elsewhere. How many artifacts are there? I, mean, I guess that would include letters. You must have some handle on that. It's a well. The estimate that I've seen is about eighty thousand, uh, like individual, let's say pieces of paper, uh, and that that includes. It's mostly paper, you know. It, in, it includes some photographs. It includes a couple other things, like his briefcase that he that he took with him when he traveled, uh, which was quite a lot. <laughs> I'm going to ask you about the individual artifacts in, sure. a, in a bit. It's, I have this all set up. Okay, yeah. And uh, do you do anything special over there for MLK Day? So we actually work uh, in conjunction with the, the Thurman Center. Uh, which is a whole other uh, separate part of, of the university. But we have a, a room, a reading room uh, called the Martin Luther King Jr. Reading Room that's on the third floor of the Mugar Library, uh, which is the main library on campus. And that whole room is devoted to uh, a big exhibit all about uh, King and the collection. And there's a video there also about his time in Boston. And there's also another video that gives you some excerpts of speeches that he gave uh, so you can get a sense of his voice and how powerful it was. And that room is open Monday through Friday, about 9 to 4.30 every day. And we keep that room open on Martin Luther King Jr. the holiday so people can come in and, and look at the collection. And there's a there's an archivist there who also will talk to them as well. I'll mention a couple of things sometimes that people are struck by uh, when they look at some of the material in the collection. So one of the things I mentioned already was uh, his briefcase. We don't have a lot of really personal artifacts in the collection other than photographs and papers and things that he wrote. So that's kind of a remarkable thing to have. And what's remarkable about it is when you see it, it really does look like a beat-up old brown leather briefcase. But what, what strikes people about it is that they put King on such a pedestal, and they think of him as this kind of demigod figure in, in some ways, this kind of bigger-than-life guy. And then they see this thing, which is just an average It's a not-bigger-than-life thing. Exactly. And it grounds it in a way when you realize, oh, hold on, this, this was a person, a human being. He had a family. He had a life uh, just like me. When they see the student papers, it's the same thing. They say, oh, this guy had to go to school just like me. He had to get grades. He had to write papers and do homework. Uh, the students see that, for example, and they and they and it connects him to them in a way that you wouldn't otherwise have. It connects the grind. Yeah. <laughs> it says, oh, yeah, his life was a grind, too. Going exactly. here, going there. Cheap hotels, trains, planes, buses. A lot buses. of travel, yeah. So the briefcase, is it brown or black? It's brown. Yeah, is it scuffed up? It's very much, yeah. <laughs> is it a, a soft leather briefcase or is it a structured rectangle? It's a it's a more of a soft leather one, yeah. So it doesn't have the corners. Not really, no, no, it doesn't have those. And it has a flap that comes over with a, with a sort of a hasp. Exactly, yeah. And it's it does, it's not too big. Um, yeah, no, it's it's not that large, and it had, it does have a little combination lock on it, although it's not locked at the moment. Is it I, monogrammed? Does it say MLK on it? It does, yeah. Trying to picture it. How is it displayed? So is it on a on a pedestal in a case? It is actually, yeah. Right when you walk in, it's sort of the first thing that you see. Um, and it's yeah. nicely lit, like yeah. a, like a museum would have it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's right. It's right in the middle of the room. Uh, and there's a little case around it, and there's some photographs next to it of uh, of him and his family and him giving speeches. And uh, like are there that. photographs of him near it, carrying it? Like, I think like we sometimes. Have yeah, folks do. I think we do have one photo that I can think of where he's he's got it in his hand, and it puts it in a. It gives it a context, like exactly if he happened to be carrying it in Montgomery or on the bridge or something like that. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You get the sense that uh, 
this was a, a thing. I mean, it's it's one of the more personal items that we have because he didn't really want these papers to be focused on him as a person. He wanted to tell right. more about. And um, it's important to note that it, it, it was MLK himself who gave you the, these things. So he chose the way he wanted to be remembered and he didn't include a lot of personal stuff. That's right. Well, that that's a whole other story too, because that when, when they were thinking of creating a, what they called a special collections at BU at the time, uh, King's old professor and advisor, this guy named Harold DeWolf, who King actually became really good friends with, he had the immediate thought that, well, this is going to be a 20th century archive, which it was at the time. We're going to need to get the papers of this guy. And <clears throat> what he did was he actually called King up and basically said, would you want to give your papers to you? And King said, oh, that sounds wonderful. Sounds great. No one else had asked King at the time. Uh, he said, I'd, I'd love to have them at BU. I think they'll they'll take good care of them and they'll make them available to people. It takes a, it's a load off him. They're archived, they're displayable, exactly. they're available to the public. He doesn't have to worry about them. Exactly. But he has access, access to them whenever he wants. So, so it was kind of remarkable. Harold DeWolf literally, I think that day, rented a van <laughs> and drove nonstop down to Atlanta, showed up at King's Place and said, all right, I'm ready. And at that time, I think they were in three or four metal file cabinets, you know, and, and King had them already ready to go and they just wheeled them out, put them in the van, he drove them all the way back up to Boston and unloaded them, and and we've had them ever since. And this is '64. Yeah, that's 1964. right. 1964. To what degree did civil rights leaders have access to the hall uh, halls of power? No, was that a common thing? Was that a one-off? Uh, and how? At what point did they gain the access to the halls of power? And were there particular events that that launched them into those into that stratosphere? It, it really depended on on who you were. So, let's say. By the time of the um, the March on Washington, right, in 1964, uh, that was something where uh, someone like King really had to, to build up his own sense of influence to be able to access people at the highest levels. He had met with Kennedy, I believe, uh, sort of one-on-one -on -one before that. But someone like Roy Wilkins, right, who was involved in the NAACP and, and a labor leader, he he already had influence, like because of that organization. So he had more access to people in power. But someone like King was was really an outsider for many years, even though he had led the Montgomery bus boycott in many ways and was very involved in that and had his own organization, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Um, his movement was not a labor movement as much as it was, in his mind, really a spiritual movement. Uh, and it was, and he really wanted it to be a mass movement. He was sometimes at odds with other leaders who really wanted to stick with uh, doing things like incremental changes or a more legalistic approach. Uh, and, and so that, that was the difference. And it took some time for uh, people who were actually in power to, to feel like they could meet with someone like, like King or other leaders like him because they didn't, they didn't know quite what to make of it for a while. And let's talk a little bit about J. Edgar Hoover. Um, was, he, was he the nemesis that we here yeah he was probably worse than you think okay <laughs> as bad as you think he was with regard to civil rights he was probably worse can you talk about it yeah i mean briefly he um he very early on saw in his mind that the civil rights movement was essentially a communist front that was anything that was going to to disrupt what he saw as the order of the united states uh, was essentially could be traced back to communist plots. And anything that smacked of disorder 
doesn't matter what the rhetoric was, didn't matter what they were really talking about. It was all basically commies. Uh, and when King called him out on this, you know, publicly at one point, Hoover said, you know, King is the biggest liar in the United States. Now, they actually did meet at some point privately, and I'd love to know what they talked about. I have no idea. But it got to the point where, you know, uh, the FBI had been bugging his phone and been tracing him for years. Uh, and, and at one point they had, you know, they found out that King was having these extramarital affairs while he was on the road and they tried to use that to shame King into, into committing suicide. Back when that mattered. Yeah. Well that, right. Uh, and which is kind of remarkable when you think about King's life had been under threat since the fifties. It's like, he's not going to kill himself at this point. Um, and it was, it was this kind of remarkable years long effort that the FBI, uh, undertook to really undermine the civil rights movement at every turn. Um, and it really only got worse all through the 60s. You know, they had informants and they had, they would send people to meetings to disrupt them. And they had people who would show up and, and try to be the most radical person in the room and then see who responded to that. And those people would be turned into the FBI as being the most dangerous people. Hoover never saw anybody in the civil rights movement as having any sincere efforts to make the world a better place. He he had a very paranoid view of this, which is that it was all the Russians and they, they were just in on it. And can you explain how civil rights was viewed as a communist threat? What about civil rights was communist? Well, there, to, to really understand it, you have to actually go back to the earlier civil rights movements in the 20s and 30s. At that time, the only political movement in the United States that was even willing to entertain the idea of civil rights were people who were socialists and communists, who, who were in the United States, but they were sort of the Communist Party of the okay. United States, people like that. So they made common cause with uh, the labor movement and the civil rights movement. It was all kind of one idea. That fell apart for various reasons. It kind of fractured in the 30s. And then by the time you get to the 40s, everything kind of splits apart because the war happens and there's various things that go on. And then that's why what's interesting about the 50s is what, what coalesces back together is now separate from the earlier political movements of communism in the United States. Like the FBI basically, again, destroys the Communist Party in the United States, and it never really pulls itself back together. So what's different about uh, King and, and the movement that he starts is, it's again, it's based in a kind of spirituality that for most Americans seems very familiar. It has nothing to do with, with communism. Now, that's not to say that King didn't feel sympathetic to socialism to some degree. Because, because the common denominator yeah. is the enfranchisement of the downtrodden. Right. Right. And he, he writes about that very early. There's a letter he writes to Coretta Scott King, actually, before they're even married, where he says, well, you know that I'm sympathetic to socialism. You know I'm not a communist, but you know that I I think capitalism is kind of wearing itself out at this point. But he's not, he's not a Marxist, you know what I mean? Now, later in his career, he speaks very openly about the fact that he feels like the, the capitalist system is being used to exploit and down, you know degrade uh, African-Americans and other minorities. But he never he never quite makes the leap to saying, well, you know, workers of the world unite. It's a, it's it's an interesting thing that he does there. Before we break, just uh, I want to put things in perspective. Now, there are folks that if they're below a certain age will think any fear of communism is crazy and paranoid. <laughs> However, at the time, it, there were threats. There were spies. There were spies in the Manhattan Project. Stalin knew knew about the bomb before he was told about the bomb. Right. Right. So it, it's. It's not insane of Hoover to be looking out for communist threats. It's just, well, we, as we know, he was a little bit uh, 
over e eager, I guess. <laughs> Let's get down to uh, more about the MLK archive over at Boston University with our excellent guest, Ryan Hendrickson. Ryan, we're talking about some of the individual artifacts over there. We talked about the briefcase, if you will, mm -hmm. and that's on a podium. That's the first thing you see when you walk in, well lit. It's kind of a centerpiece, right? Yeah, definitely. What else can we see? <clears throat> well, one of the things that sometimes catches people's eye is a comic book. And it's a, it, sounds, it, pe it catches people because it seems funny when they see it. Like, what is, what is this comic book doing here? Well, the comic book is called The Montgomery Story, and it's all about the Montgomery bus boycott, which in case people don't know much about that, that was a boycott that took place from, I think it was 1955 to about 1956. And it was, uh, this is the one that Rosa Parks was involved in where she was told to move to the back of the bus and she didn't, she got arrested. And it became a case that other civil rights people in Montgomery wanted to use to push back against the segregation in that city, in the transit system and elsewhere. And it lasted about a year and it was actually, it, it was uh, a big struggle, but it was very successful. And because it was so successful, it became a model uh, that other people wanted to think about how they would emulate that. So this comic book was put out by a group called the Fellowship for Reconciliation, which was a group of Quakers, actually, that had helped fund the efforts of the boycott. And they put this out as an effort to kind of educate people about what had happened in Montgomery. So this, it might seem kind of funny, but at the time, you think about comic books are easy to access. There's a lot of visual parts to them. And what's funny about it was uh, it was distributed to a lot of different people. One of the guys who got it was somebody who later on, many years later, was, was one of the guys who started the sit-in protest in Greensboro, North Carolina. Because he had read that comic book, he was talking with some guys in his college, and he was like, you know... With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Uh, we could do something like this where we are. We don't have to, to wait around for an organization to tell us what to do. We can make a plan and do it ourselves and execute it. So he and three of his friends ended up doing the very first sit-in protest at a lunch counter in, in Greensboro. And you can actually see that lunch counter at the Smithsonian if you go down to, if it, whenever it opens again, go down to D.C. and check it out. And it's, it's one of those things where uh, you realize that everything you're looking at has a story behind it, and there's some little tale that it tells if you know how to tease it out. Uh, and that's one of the ones that, that always sticks out in my mind. Anything else? I mean, of course, there are 80,000 80, other things. Well, I'll, things. Mention, I'll mention one other one that, okay. that also strikes people. It's a photograph of King. It looks like he's sitting at a table, and he looks like he has his hand in the air, and there's a couple people next to him, and it's not clear what's going on. And if you read the description of it, it's clear that he's been stabbed in the chest. So this was 1958, and he had just published his book, Stride Toward Freedom, which is the first book that he wrote, and it was all about the Montgomery bus boycott. And he was doing a book signing in, in Harlem, and a woman named uh, Isola Ware Curry, uh, who was mentally ill, attacked him and stabbed him with, uh, it's kind of a big letter opener, essentially it's, it's a small knife. And if you look carefully in the photograph, you can actually see the knife sticking out of his chest. And he's got his arm held in the air to prevent the you know, internal bleeding in a certain way, and the doctor there is helping him. 
he was taken to Harlem Hospital, um, and he much later in his fact that the the last speech he ever gave, he talked about how the doctors told him later that if he had sneezed, that knife would have shifted and severed one of his arteries, and he would have bled out and died. Um, when you can just think about how the world would have been different if he had died in 1958 instead of 68. Back to Rosa Parks. It's my understanding that this was not just an incident that became that came to the attention of civil rights leaders. They were looking for a case, as That's I understand right. it. Yeah. And there are a couple other potential uh, situations, and they determined that the uh, the principle was flawed, and they would find fault with this principle and it would harm the case and finally they got to Rosa Parks and she was perfect that, that's that's correct there actually was a, a, a girl who who was 15 uh, who also uh, had pushed back against the system and had been arrested but they decided against pursuing that because she was a minor uh, they thought it wouldn't go as well so uh, they but they were they were literally kind of you know see, trying to, to find the the case they thought would 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 hold up and, and Rosa Parks happened to be uh, that that person so uh, when King actually came to Montgomery, he had just graduated from Boston. It was right around the same time in 55 he, he started in Montgomery as the pastor. He'd only been there a few months. Uh, and, and in fact, I don't even know if he'd started yet when, when they approached him and said, we would like you to help organize this movement. And just through his own sort of charisma, uh, people started looking to him for leadership. Uh, and he kind of sort of became, took on this natural role. But it's, it's, he was only 25 years old at the time. It's kind of hard to imagine that this is the role that he was thrust into. But that's how it worked out. Can you talk about, in some detail, the events at the Edmund Pettus Bridge? Um, yeah, that was the Selma to Montgomery March. Um, I've seen video of it. Yeah. And <clears throat> it's compelling stuff because these two forces are marching right towards each other. And I am when I see it, I think how brave these people are because they were marching right towards a bunch of people who hated them, had guns, clubs, with no problem killing them, yet they marched right into them. That, you know, it uh, the the only light I can really shed on that was was from talking to John Lewis about it, who's presently he's a congressman from Atlanta. He was somebody who I was lucky enough to meet uh, a couple of times. Uh, he came up and visited us. Uh, he was a commencement speaker one year, and he also came up to visit for another event that we did. And he spoke about being there. And, I mean, he was somebody who was actually hurt quite badly on the bridge and, um, you know, really put his life on the line, you would say. And what he said about that was that the the viewpoint that they had was that uh, sometimes you had to put yourself in the way of that kind of danger. And there wasn't really any other alternative. Like if you if you wanted to force people to start making changes in the way they, they thought about these things, you had to somehow sometimes just use your own body, your own self to do that. And it's hard because, you know, there's such a long history of uh, violence against specifically against African-Americans in American history. I mean, it's it goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, and in a way, you know, the. The, the goal here was like, well, if, if this is going to happen, you know, we're going to actually be in control of it, and it's going to be something that's going to lead to change. It was something that it was done uh, as, a, as an act of bravery, uh, but also as a way of calling attention to the injustice that was happening. Now, one thing to keep in mind, too, is that a lot of the early civil rights 
activists were had been trained in nonviolence. You have to train yourself not to react uh, when someone's coming at you with a club or when, when you're sitting at a lunch counter and they start dumping things on you and hitting you and spraying you with stuff. It's your normal physical reaction is to fight back or your mental reaction is to fight, you know, fight or flight. So they would actually go to workshops and train themselves not to do that, uh, where they would attack each other sometimes and have to train themselves. This nonviolent resistance took a lot of work. Um, and over time, as a lot of newer, younger people came into the movement, they didn't have that training. Uh, and that actually sometimes made things more difficult, like in, in the mid to late 60s. That was, that was an issue that they ran into. Can you spend a bit of time talking about how King came to embrace nonviolence and really understand the science of it? Yeah, this was something that he was exposed to uh, first when he was a student at uh, Crozier Theological Seminary in Pennsylvania, where he went after Morehouse College. And he went to a speech by a guy named Mordecai Johnson. And Johnson, uh, who is actually a very interesting guy in his own right, Johnson basically talked about uh, what was going on in India and how they gained their independence through this movement of nonviolent resistance, which also, by the way, started as a boycott movement against the, the British. <laughs> so in a way, it was connected to the Montgomery bus boycott, right? And um, King was really inspired by this. And the more he thought about it, the more he saw a connection between Gandhian nonviolence and sort of a, a Christian approach to this problem of how do you resist a, a power uh, structure that's so bent on keeping you down and segregating you out of existence or out of influence. You know, what you can fight back using violence itself, or you can try to resist it in a, in a different way. And um, not everybody agreed with this. There was a lot of people who thought that, that King was, was completely off base, especially after, you know, 1966 is really when, when it, it turns around and you get this massive violent counter a counter movement against the civil rights movement that in a way really hasn't stopped since then. And so, it, you know, nonviolent resistance um, seemed to be, seemed to work and seemed to be very successful, including on the, on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, for example. But after like the, the, the uh, Meredith March where he gets shot and people start talking openly about, you know, making this a black power movement after the Watts riots, um, you know, after the, the even the Memphis sanitation strike where King is assassinated, people are like, what, what is nonviolence getting us? So there was a lot of controversy in the movement, especially as time went on, about how valuable it was as a tool. But King never gave up on it. He always felt like that was the only way they were going to get the results that they wanted. Seems like a lot of highly charismatic people get there by way of nonviolence. For example, Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah, That was well, one of his, his keys. Turn the other cheek, and love you know, thy neighbor. It's it's very interesting too because it, some people think of nonviolence as being very passive, but the way that King used it, and other research and other protesters use it, it wasn't passive at all. It was actually very. It kind of threw a monkey wrench into the system. Often, like they would often, you know, marching like they did on the bridge and, and putting themselves in in harm's way was often a way to to kind of jam up the gears of uh, of the, the violence cycle. Exactly. Yeah. I just I want to point out something, and that is that Martin Luther King Jr. and Martin Luther the original uh, share some things in common. They were both David's fighting Goliath, and I recently watched a special on Martin Luther from way back, and and what he had to what he was going up against the massive power of the church, a church that was selling uh, get out of hell free cards right. for large money uh, and uh, he alone 
fought them. And King wasn't alone, but certainly King was fighting a, a, a foe as powerful. That's true. And you, you mentioned something about the fact that MLK's dad was inspired by the original Martin Luther. That's right, yeah. Um, it's, it's a strange bit of trivia in a way, but uh, so Martin Luther King Jr. wasn't born with that name. He was actually born with the name Michael King. And his father, uh, I think also was named Michael King. I remember exactly, but at some point his, his father decided to change his own name to Martin Luther King Jr. And it's not exactly clear why, but one story is that he was very much inspired by the story of Martin Luther. He had traveled to Europe and been inspired to change his name. And when he did that, he changed his son's name also to Martin Luther King Jr. But uh, for the rest of his life, Martin Luther King Jr. would tell his friends and other people who, who he knew well to call him Mike. Uh, and they thought it was like a nickname, but that was actually his birth name was Michael King. Uh, now, his, his family members would call him ML. So if you come to the King Room at, at, at BU, you'll see there's a case with all different letters in it to him. And, and there's one that's, that says, you know, Dear ML, and I think it was from his cousin or something. And there's, a, there's other ones that say Dear Mike, and those are people that he was friends with when he was in college. Can you talk a little bit more about King's time in Boston? Because he was here for a while. He, you know, he lived among us here, and part of what he became, he became here. Yeah, so it's, it's very interesting in, in, in a lot of ways. It, they were formative years in his life, and he talked about them that way. Um, you know, he came to BU because BU was, was uh, I think, the only school, well, one of the very few schools in the country at that time who was giving uh, doctorate degrees to African-American students at all. And I think it was the only one in this area. And the School of Theology was the premier school at Boston University at that at that time. They were known for that. And uh, so it was a prestigious school to go to, and he was happy to go there. And uh, he had he, he met some great people there, people like um, this guy Alan Knight Chalmers and Walter Mulder. Uh, you know, they're not household names, but they had been active in, in earlier phases of the civil rights movement. Uh, and, and King went there to study systematic theology, which is a very kind of cerebral uh, thing to study. But while he's in Boston, he starts to get involved in the, in the black community here. First, he lives on St. Patolf Street, and then he moves down to the corner of Mass Ave and Columbus and, and really got involved in the, in the scene there. Uh, and he starts to get more interested in, in being active socially in the movement. He thinks about that, what his role is going to be. He also um, he met his future uh, wife, Coretta Scott, who was a student at New England Conservatory at the time. She was studying to be a singer. She had gotten a... Um, uh, scholarship to study opera, I, th I believe, and she was singing. And um, it was interesting because he was somebody who was fairly well off. He still had a position at his father's church in Atlanta, so he had some income. He also was preaching at 12th Baptist Church, um, and he had a car, which was a big deal at the time. And so he was, you know, and he was a young guy. He was going around and, and sort of meeting all the local ladies and, and checking them out, but nobody really impressed him that much. So he went to uh, this woman he knew named... Uh, who was the, the, the niece of this reverend that his father was a friend of, and said, could you introduce me to somebody who you think would be a good match? And she said, I have just the person in mind for you, which is Coretta Scott. So he matched them up, and he knew within an hour, he said, that this was going to be the woman for him. She wasn't quite so sure. <laughs> she had her reservations. But he said that the first date, you know, he thought that she would make some small talk, and they'd sit down and chit-chat. She said they sat down, and she immediately started talking about civil rights she had already been involved in the movement, and he didn't even really know that. Uh, and so he immediately was like, oh, she's serious. Like, she's she knows what she's talking about. He's very impressed by that. And then 
when he started talking also about his own interests, she's like, oh, okay, this is a guy who's a little more interesting. He's not, he's not like a Southern preacher type because that wasn't what she was interested in. Uh, so, you know, she gave it some time, but, what, but he was really Was he kind of a, I don't know, a player? Did he? A little bit, a li- yeah. I, I don't mean, you mm, know, uh, he was, dating yeah. lots of folks, but I, I mean, he pictured himself as kind of, kind of smooth. He did, yeah, yeah, I think he did. I think, and it's funny because, you know, he was a short guy, little, little stocky, um, but I think every time he opened his mouth, people Big things just, came out. And, 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 you know, I think women were impressed, but also he had kind of a, a, he had a bit of an entourage, you know. He was also somebody who was very still plugged into what was going on down south because uh, he had news from home. And so people wanted to keep in touch with him to see what was going on, what, what's, what's happening. So he was somebody that, that, that yeah, he, he immediately, just by force of his personality, already attracted uh, people to him. We think of uh, Dr. King as you know, a charismatic lion. How much of that do we perceive because he was killed? And how much of that is the martyrdom? And how much was he that when he was alive? Well, it's it's easy to forget that by the time he was killed, he actually was not someone who had the same shine to him. Like just uh, you know, four years earlier, he had given the the big speech of the March on Washington and he'd received the Nobel Prize, he'd been on the cover of Time magazine, and you know, he had met with the president. By nineteen sixty-eight, he's somebody who most of the people in the movement had thought of as being washed up. Really? Yeah. He was not he did not at all have the same prestige as he used to have. I was like, where is he now almost? A little bit. Yeah. It was sort of like uh I wouldn't say he was forgotten, but I would say that um, a lot of, especially younger people at that time, saw him as somebody who maybe the moment had passed, you know. So when he's well, when he's killed, there's sort of this recognition of of what had been lost, and and the potential that was there that that hadn't been realized, and I think that was what a lot of people understood as what was so tragic about it. In a minute, sixty seconds, I'm, I'm sure it probably won't take half that. Okay. Why was he killed? Um, well, James Earl Ray was pretty much a hardcore white supremacist, as we would say nowadays. Straight up, simple, yeah. triple, simple. A lot, a lot of whites hated King's guts, and James Earl Ray happened to be the right place at the right time and have a, a, a rifle and be it's, a good shot. You know, I, I went down to that museum. I saw where he shot from. Am I right to remember that he was trying to impress his white supremacist pals? That's part of it, yeah. yeah. There's a lot of conspiracy theories about about it because he he managed to kind of get away in the beginning and he had some money stashed away. Um, but I have to say, we actually have a group of letters also as part of our collections at the Gottlieb Center. And you read these letters and it's pretty clear that he and other members of his family were, you know, they, they, were, they were just um, kind of violent, psychotic white guys who just hated King, like a lot of people did. Ryan Hendrickson, thank you very thank much. You. <laughs> thank you. Uh, we're... we're Lucky to have you. And uh, is it easy to get in to see this stuff? Do you have to make an appointment, or do you have to be like the governor to see some of these? No, absolutely things? not. No, if you if you want to use the collection, uh, you do need to make an appointment just so we know uh, that when you're going to be there. The collection's available uh, Monday through Friday uh, from nine to four p.m. That was another Jay Talking podcast. If you loved what you heard, like and review the show. It helps others find us. Subscribe to the Jay Talking podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, and never miss an episode. Follow me on Twitter for show updates. And as always, you can catch the show live every weeknight starting Sunday, midnight to 5 on WBZ, Boston's News Radio.
LuckyLandSlots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.